Hello, and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth, and this is Season 2, Episode 7, Singing Over Ourselves with Henri. Emmanuel Henri, also known by his stage name as Henri, is a musician, artist, and educator who studied opera in Ukraine and Moldova and has performed all around the U.S. and Europe. He's toured with Lyle Lovett, been a soloist with the Maui Chamber Orchestra, Organ Symphony, and performed in American Repertoire Theater debut The Black Clown, Madame Butterfly, Sanctuaries, An African-American Requiem, Showboat, Carmen, The Big Night, La Traviata, Portland Opera Company, and more. He serves on the Arts and Music Board of King's School in Seattle and on the Board of Active Space in Portland, Oregon. Today he's going to be speaking with us about how he got started as an opera singer, his advice for using and finding your own voice, and some of the challenges that marginalized artists face. At the end of the episode, we'll also share one of his songs. It's not in its final form, but it's a demo track off of his forthcoming EP. Hi, my name is Emmanuel Onri. I am a Portland native. I am an opera singer, as well as a contemporary and soulful artist. I'm an educator, and so I strive to bring all these worlds together and bring culture and diversity as a whole to a bunch of listeners and to people like you who are listening right now. As a kid, probably about seven years old, I turned on the TV one day and there was opera that was on and it was the only thing the only channel that came through at that time and I sat down and I started to recognize this connection between Marvel and these superheroes that everyone really celebrated back in the 90s and I feel like I witnessed the the connection between superheroes and what I saw on TV before my eyes which was classical opera music the caveat to that is we think that it's a stuffy thing but for this seven-year-old's eyes, it was actually this moment of seeing villains and people cheating on one another and hearts being broken and, and death and betrayal. And it was extremely exciting at the time. So with that in mind, I just said, this is what I want to do. And so moments after, I ran to my siblings and to my stepdad at the time. And I just said, I want to be an opera singer. Ooh! You know, because I get, you know, I hadn't hit puberty yet, and so I have this huge, uh, this high soprano voice, and I'm singing around. Uh, little did I know, probably several years before I was born, my mother also wanted to be an opera singer. She auditioned and she was accepted for the Portland Opera, and someone came along and told her that she couldn't do it because she had three kids. Then she totally gave up that dream. And she never told me this until later on in life. At the age of 10, my father had passed away. There wasn't a lot of conversation around his death. From that moment on, I I kind of went mute as a kid. So that year was a very silent year for me. Other than music and experience in music, I was fairly quiet. It was a year that a lot of people didn't have a chance to get to know me because I just kind of lost a lot. However, there was one thing that stood very, very close to me during that time, and that was singing and music. 
There are moments that I would sing over myself and I would weep and cry and I would sing certain hymns that I witnessed at church at the time or sing different songs that just kind of, they would breathe life and kind of comfort and console me. Oftentimes I'd be singing probably at one or two o'clock at night, just crying and weeping myself to sleep because that was the thing that comforted me. And yes, I did hear a, you need to cut that out. Cut that out, son. It's it's really late. Like, stop that. Uh, and I would, I would hear things like that. But it was I knew that music was a real tangible thing for me. And my whole family sang. But I was I didn't have this this training at that time. I was told I should probably never sing. The gift wasn't given to me. Quote from my aunt. <laughs> It's like, baby, you need to grow up and be a doctor. We're going to do something because you didn't receive the gift. So then age 13, Miss Helen Dietz from Clear Creek Middle School, she came to me and she told me that I should sing in her choir. And I was like, okay, sure. My family sings. So she heard me sing. And I was like, oh, this was fun. And she was like, you actually have a really, really, really great voice. And she gave me a song from Carmen later on and started putting me into different competitions. When I went into high school, I was told that I should not sing classical music because my voice was soulful and that the color of my skin was connected to my soulful voice and therefore I should stick with what I know. That was kind of this subtle way of saying, you're African-American, this type of music is not really meant for you. There was another moment that I found my voice. And I would say that it was probably the age of 11. And so I was going to church one day and I was allowed to walk to church for the first time by myself. And I didn't have to go to Sunday school. It was a day to be celebrated. So on, <laughs> on my walk there, I witnessed a dog that hit this building or that hit this fence and the fence topples a little bit. And I was like, that was a really close call. And he keeps on hitting the fence. And eventually the fence, it falls over. And this dog is charging me. And all of a sudden I use this big voice. And all of a sudden this dog, it stops. And I'm thinking to myself, holy crap. This dog is listening to me. This is strange. And so I continue to talk to the dog. And I'm like yelling with this huge voice. And this, at least, my voice is at least traveling like a block and a half because I'm like really trying to get this dog's attention. The dog stops, it goes back. There was this voice that lived inside of me that was really, really big. And there was something about it that was, it was convicting, it was honest, it was, it was authentic, it was real. And it was something that had this command to it. And then later on, I realized also that that's the same sound that classical singers use. Fast forward to uh, competitions in, in, in high school uh, they told me that I couldn't do it, and then I eventually started to mimic that same sound that I had learned when I was 11 years old. And so I had this big space. I, I knew that space. I knew that command, and I knew emotion, and I knew healing, and how to sing to the soul. From that moment, I started to cultivate those things and study about three hours a day in my garage, and then I started to compete and Two years from that, my junior and senior year, I became the number one opera singer in the state of Oregon. I was also doing gospel music and trying to keep both worlds very separate. There was a moment that I had a chance to tour and well, to sing background for Josh Groban. And I witnessed this moment between pop music 
and and gospel music having sometimes like for you raise me up these gospel backgrounds with this classical singer in front and so i kind of witnessed like there might be a niche to this so fast forward 10 12 odd years now i'm using the same technique with a little bit more soul and a lot more authentic classical music or traditional classical music and more and also very traditional gospel music from what I know infusing them into my project which I'm creating now. I believe that everyone has a voice and everyone has the ability to sing. I believe that the human voice can be strengthened just like the human ear. Uh, working on intonation and vibrato and breathing and other you know technical things that's a little bit different and so that actually takes a bit more training some people have it naturally and other people have to work for it like myself the great thing about working for something is that you can also create a science out of it as well and so that is the part that i really really love about being a vocal coach and uh working vocal health and working with public speakers it's a major thing of knowing what someone is doing with the voice in order to change it and create a healthy voice. And so you have a lot of public speakers that lose their voices quite often because of their speech pattern mm-hmm. and using the voice wrong or speaking too harshly on the voice or not remembering to simply breathe between sentences. And so they're running out of air, they're using the voice wrong. That's where we as vocal coaches and uh, people who've studied vocal health are able to assist both speakers and singers. So to answer your question in short, yes, everyone has the ability to sing. You just kind of have to work for it. We live in a time and age where we are losing the power of the voice and being able to advocate both for ourselves, both speaking up for good and wrong, and then also constantly using technology when we communicate with our hands there are many passive ways that we are not communicating with each other in person. I believe that we are more increasingly losing the ability to use the voice. So someone says, why do we need to reclaim the voice? We have to wonder why it's so scary to do karaoke in front of people, uh, to do it in front of our friends. There's something that's so vulnerable about using the voice because from what I believe, the voice is very telling. As a vocal coach, I'm able to assess if a person is sad or if they're depressed or what they've drunk the night before, what they've eaten the night before, what they've eaten just before the lesson. I'm able to tell if the person, if they are having issues uh, with coming in on entrances late or too early. Sometimes they have issues in either hesitating in their daily life or they deal with issues with being on time. There are tons of assessments that I can assess from hearing a person sing and how that correlates to their daily life. And in that, I believe that we can change the voice by changing regimens in our daily lives. If we digress with the question, why is it so important to use our voice? I think there's power in using our voice when we use it correctly and we use it in the way that we want to use it. And so there's small changes that we can make both in our daily lives and in our musical lives by simply using the voice to both bring life to, to individuals and to circumstances and then also to, to kill off and damage certain situations as well. Mm-hmm. And there's usually action that follows the voice. 
Oftentimes when I am teaching a technique in vocal sessions, I will tell someone to do a visual action that kind of reminds them of where the sound is going or how to visualize the sound from their bodies working with their voices and happening at the same time. Usually that causes a change instantly within the voice as well as creating things that are contrary to that as well. So if a person is singing high, sometimes we think, <clears throat> and we think of really squeezing the voice. Mm -hmm. And anytime that, for example, when we get stressed or we think something is difficult, we squeeze the voice. We get really stressed on the voice. What if we do something with our hands, we make our hands fall while the voice is shooting high? It's called contrary motion. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that we can use that same contrary motion from vocal sessions to life that is what decreases stress mm -hmm. and so if you use those techniques every day then automatically your stress levels go down and so there are different techniques that i try to use for that so reclaiming the voice uh, in that powerful way uh, can both bring forth a change in mental health throughout your daily life and that is the power of the voice have been an individual like many other people out there who've never really fit in and so there's a moment in time where we live very very lonely lives and then we find other people who don't fit in who are like us and then we're like wait a second this kind of might be a thing and and maybe if I live life long enough I'll maybe find a community of people who uh, are not status quo or whatever and they just kind of see the world very similar to I do, and that is simply being authentic. And for me, there's authenticity in knowing that, yes, I grew up in uh, the ghettos of Portland, which there were ghettos, believe it or not. There's one summer that, you know, there was five killings on one, five, or actually six, including the woman who was pregnant at the time. Killings. They didn't happen to die, they were murders. And to grow up in a space like that and but then to somehow arrive into this community and this culture of singing week after week inside the Keller Auditorium with predominantly all white audience, there's a dichotomy there. I do remember the first rehearsal was really interesting. I walked into our rehearsal space right off of Water Avenue at the Portland Opera. And I immediately see this Russian woman who is the custodian at the time. And she greets me. And I obviously see that she's Slavic. And I start, it's like, she's like, da. And she like begins to like say, yeah, I'm, I'm Russian. I'm from Ukraine. I said, I spent time in Ukraine. So we have this full conversation in Russian. And she's kind of helping me out as I'm, you know, stumbling through. And she tells me that no one has really spoken to her in the last three weeks. And because she doesn't, her English was broken at the time and she really appreciated me taking time to speak to her. 
Uh, and so I go into rehearsal, everything is fine. Second rehearsal, I have an artistic director approach me and they're like, so your last name is French. And I said, yes, it is. And she says, but you speak Russian. I was like, well, I'm okay. She goes, well, you also speak French right here. And I said, well, yeah, I'm okay. And she's like, kind of looks me in the eye a little bit. And then I look her in the eye and we take a pause and she goes, what are you, a part of the witness protection program or something? And then we both laugh and then she looks at me again. And I realize, hmm, that's a very odd statement. If I said that I was a part of the witness protection program, it would probably be more convincing than for me to be an African-American young person that also has a skill set as all of these other individuals that are in this room that are also linguists, which you have to study about three or four different languages in order to be in the same room. It'd be easier for me to joke about or to be a part of this part of the witness protection program uh, than to be in the same space and just simply love the same music and to celebrate the same culture. And I realized from that moment, all eyes were on me. And that this woman, this Russian woman said, I really, really like the Chorny guy. And Chorny just means black. I like the black guy. And so trying to figure out who is Chorny, what, what does that mean in Russian? And so she's trying to describe who I was. And she says, I really like the new Russian guy. And so she thought that I was Russian, which was really awesome. But the idea was that people were talking and because I was new and I was young and African-American, kind of all eyes were questioning why I was in the room. How did you get here? Why are you here? Everyone is twice your age. And so it was it was this very mind boggling moment, but also this moment of you got to pay attention and you got to show up and you have to learn your music and, and whatever issues that you have in learning or whatever, like learning the music, figure it out. Do your best to, to shine. And within that, I did. Then I ended up being re recorded on a few things from OPB and having different photo shoots and just kind of being really heavily involved in, in the cop company. And it was great. Then other doors began to open up as well. But it was odd, it was lonely. Definitely had friends come along and help me and teach me along the way, but the experience of going into this space and no one else looking like me experiencing that same culture and paradigm shift that I was experiencing at that time was a very lonely experience, especially being young. But I mean, there, it was, people were obviously young in spirit, but simultaneously the culture is not mine. And so there are many spaces that I felt like I had to, I had to work overtime in order to regain back the soulfulness or feed the soulfulness that I appreciate from day to day or the indie community that I really, really like believe in or the community that's experimental in Portland, the jazz community that really fuels my soul. So I had to really reach out into all these different communities just to fuel this space because I was kind of doing rehearsals at the time, which was heavy, but I knew that I needed that just to maintain my own authenticity and to kind of move forward. I've kind of now taken all these fusions of sounds and of communities and I'm able to put them into one project. But as for the culture, it has been hard knowing that 
I am within this community, but it does not represent me. It doesn't represent necessarily people that look like me. And oftentimes I felt like the poster child. It's just been like this moment where you, you dress up and you play the part and then you go home into a world that looks nothing like the opera. There have been moments where I've been on stage and I've seen people in the audience and after the show they're like, they give me a thumbs up, good job. And then I take off, you know, the wardrobe and the makeup and I'm walking home and I try waving at people and they grab their purses and they grab their belongings and they bring their wife a little bit closer to them and they don't speak and they don't use their words. And oftentimes I have to go out of my way to to say, hey, did you really enjoy the show? And usually they'll say, yeah, I really enjoyed the show. You should see it sometime. And my response is, ah, thanks. Actually, I was just on stage. And I said, no way. That is so cool. Wait, you mean you were on stage? I, absolutely. I was just on stage. There's this thing where people don't really see you. You bring them into experience on stage and they, it's this great thing, but they don't. You may be a black person on stage or a person who is of color, but they see you as part of a story and outside of that, they don't really necessarily see you. I was doing a show called The Black Clown and there's a, a dear friend of mine who had performed for, for many years with the color purple. And so she was telling me, there was a moment where she was getting on the subway in New York as we were like just an all black cast and sharing stories. She said, this moment I got on the subway and someone called her uh, a black bee. And I said, move out the way. And I pushed her out of the way and then got on to the subway and it almost made her late for the show. She gets to the show, she performs the show you know, raving reviews and afterwards they have a talk back and they're signing autographs and that same man who called her a black bee and pushed her off the subway comes up to her and says, hey, that was the most amazing performance. Thank you so much. And he starts raving and raving and raving about who she is and her performance on stage. And she's looking with a blank face like, you don't see at all that I'm that black bee that you just pushed off the subway you don't you don't see me at all mm -hmm. and he's asking for an autograph he's going on and saying these things and it's like yeah that that is show business where some people see you on stage and i see you as your gift and i see you as a stunning thing but they don't really see you day to day and nor will they treat you with such honor dignity or or simply i see you you're here you're a human you exist like me and having common courtesy and I think that that is the strange dichotomy that I experience hour by hour, place by place, within Portland, within L.A., within New York. People don't treat you a certain way in the States till they think that you're worth something. I think humanity in today's day and age, we need to really work on that. Treating people with the utmost respect because you never know who you're talking to or you're listening to or who you're sitting on the train with or who you've just cut off on the street. It's always good to just simply do good because good is good. 
You don't have to taste all of the best pies in the world to know that a, a pie is good. You just know that it's good because it's good. That's kind of my way of navigating the world. You just know some things are good because it's just good. You know that's right and it's righteous because it's righteous. And it feels good down in my soul to do that. And if I have to question if it, if it is, then maybe there might be some ill intention there. Let's search and see what that is. But goodness is good and it's important to, t to treat individuals as such. I think that it's extremely important as artists to A, be an artist, and also to use your superpowers and your influence for good. And so right now, as, as an artist kind of starting out, I'm sure these ways to use my voice as an activist or to use it towards an initiative is going to change and develop and kind of birth its own thing over time. I'm working with this company called Third Angle New Music on a project called Sanctuaries right now. And it is an opera, but it's actually based about gentrification in Portland. And I think it's really interesting that we talk about gentrification, which is kind of like a dichotomy or an oxymoron with classical music, yeah. which is seen as being a European white form of music that an all-black cast is doing. In actuality, most African Americans come from this very soulful gospel kind of type of music and a jazz background and rock and roll we know that like we are a culture that has is kind of the genesis of that yeah. and so knowing that and then doing an opera based upon that is really really intriguing and so to talk about something like gentrification history of portland being initially a white utopia and how to not necessarily reclaim space but just to say these are the things that are and that were and now that are becoming and how do we look these issues in the face both you and i and we begin to talk about our wounds as they're open and so within the opera it's really it's quite abstract at times it's, some melodies are quite difficult but the message speaks so loudly that it's very easy to understand for example only in portland do we have cherry trees that bloom at the same time as blackberries and there's certain certain bushes that we have and certain uh, trees if you're a Portland native you really kind of know that it's a special place yeah. that lights up at a specific time of year and you know that that is Portland there's no other city in the country like this space and to talk about that space as it was before and to know that even the, before that change in my experience growing up that I was not necessarily wanted in this city, but they allowed me to be here and they allowed my family to be here and they created red lines in order for us to just be in a space and to exist. And then all of a sudden, when that was not a thing anymore, there was the thing of diminishing both that community and then pushing it out and saying, let's get rid of the riffraff. It's wrong. It's bad. There's crime rates. It's not a positive space. There's no good in this space. Let's totally change it and not only change it, but push everyone out that looks like this specific demographic. It's fairly hurtful. So to, to kind of navigate this story artistically and honestly and do the soul work together, it's really, really exciting. And so mm -hmm. I encourage any and every artist to use your voice to your advantage 
by helping educate. First off, we educate and we educate in love and in harmony. And we continue to be the students as well. I realized the moment that I stopped learning is the moment that I should stop teaching. It's really exciting. So I'm working on that project right now along with the African-American Requiem with Damien Jeter, who is a phenomenal composer and opera singer, really talking about our story, the American story. And I think that when doing music, it's important for me to share both marginalized groups and sharing the American story in that. Because growing up, the American story didn't look like me necessarily that looked like me on television nor on stage and I, I always always tell people like even for african-american roles or black roles on television for men we only have two stigmas either you are overweight and funny or you are muscular and sexy and you are the sex symbol very few roles have this thing that's in between if you're short or if you're skinny or if you're this and you're that you, you, you're not fit for the camera. You're not fit for the role. And it kind of breaks my heart uh, when other ethnicities are able to show who they are and the demographic of difference and on stage and to know like that's not or has not been available to me. But now I have to break through that mold and do that, yeah. that work. So with doing both activism work intentionally and speaking out about it or simply living that, I think it's it's important to me. And I encourage other creatives to no longer fear or feel like they're alone because really I'm in it with you. I'm extremely excited about the EP that's coming right now. It is the only time in my life that I've felt like this work actually represents who I am as an artist and as an individual and how I'm able to share actions in my daily life and how I have to navigate all of these spaces and these worlds every day that no one will ever relate to. And I can put this in one song. With all these different spaces that I'm constantly navigating throughout Portland and both the Slavic community and that black community and this multitude of spaces in Portland, I'm able to add all these, these beautiful, inspired sounds and visuals, and I'm able to put them into one project and be very intentional about that and just try not to forget those things that I've experienced and I've taken in and I've watched for a very, very long time. That's what is so exciting about the EP. Another really exciting aspect about the album is that We've created it in classical form, but we have a traditional sounds of gospel music and also soul music with a pop technique. There's a different format and different cadences that we use and different canons that we use that kind of remind the listener or inform the listener to what's coming next. In my project right now, we're planting these small little sections that are preparing the listener's ear for what is to come in the future. In the song, Living in the Light, the first song on the album, we have taken probably about three or four different melodies that are in other tracks, and we have decided to plant them into Living in the Light. So anybody can listen to the album full out, and they're able to say, oh my gosh, that's that recognizable melody that I've heard somewhere. Wow. But in actuality, you've heard it maybe in the first song or the second song or they may be shortened or turned upside down 
or there may be a third higher, or it may be a melodic scale, or it may be a minor. So we're, we're definitely geeking out over, over the project, and we have phenomenal concert pianist Dario. And then we have Emily Haswell, and then also uh, Jonathan Mooney and myself, and then Matt Howen, who is a phenomenal writer and a friend of mine who I trust dearly. And so we, we kind of get together ideas in the studio, and then I bring those ideas to the team, and then we kind of expand on it. And so sometimes we write choruses and verses over smoke breaks, and then we come back and put it together, and then we're done with it for about a week or two. And then we come back and revisit it again with new ears, and then we kind of send it off to friends and see how they react to it, and, uh, and then we go back and revise it again. And so it's really exciting just kind of going through this process and living through this music, and I, I look forward to releasing it to you guys soon.
You can see more of Henri's work on Instagram at Mr. Underscore Henri. That's at M-R underscore H-E-N-R-E-I-D. We have a live show coming up this April for Design Week in Portland. You can find out more at designportland.org. Did you know we also have merch? You can buy hats and mugs and tote bags. They're all emblazoned with our slogan, Keep Dreamin' and Skeebin'. They're $20 each and can be found on our website, futureprairie.com. As always, if you have any questions or feedback about this show, please write to us. You can reach us on social media at Future Prairie. Thank you to our production assistant and sound engineer, Matt Larimer, for his assistance in putting this episode together. Thank you as well to our recent donors from a Facebook campaign. Some of those donations came through anonymously, so I don't know who all is donating, but I want to let you know your support means the world to us and really helps us to keep this podcast going.